This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Navid by Our Lady Peace. This album is not really that alternative. You know, obviously, you know, I love guitars. God awful. To bring a dictionary to this freaking show. I was just sort of shocked at that. Yeah, the tone of his voice is, yeah, that's distinct. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, uh, we have uh, had a string of interviews and suggestions, but we are finally getting into some of our own picks, and on this particular episode, we're going with one of yours. Do you remember picking this record way back in the early part of 2013? Seems like a decade ago. It does. We are uh, we're approaching the halfway point already of, uh, of season three. This is episode 124, and for this episode, we are reaching back into the, uh, I like to call this the WFAL archives, and we're going with some Our Lady Peace and their first record, Navid. Now, I have some questions to ask about your history with, uh, with Our Lady Peace. First of all, did you go to the show with Keith and I and some other people at the Toledo Sports Arena to see Our Lady Peace, Sponge, and Candlebox? Were you at that show? Uh, no. I saw <clears throat> Our Lady Peace in Toledo, but I don't think it was that show. Okay. You saw about a different... Did you see the show... When, I saw uh, the show the night that Jeff Buckley died. That's what I thought. Okay, that was yeah. this. That was my next question because I remember yeah. Keith went to that with you, and you guys came yeah, back that, from that. That would have been the uh, the clumsy tour, I believe. Right, the second album. So I saw them on the first album. It was when uh, Candlebox was touring for Lucy, and Sponge was still touring. I think on their first record, and Our Lady Peace was was touring. Um, I think I have this right for this record. I don't think they had gotten into Lucia because that was like 96, 97, around that time when that came out. Yeah. And we both saw them here in Columbus in, I want to say, 99 or 2000, when probably, I think, 2000, when uh, Sheila Divine opened for them at the Newport Music Hall. Yep. It was the Spiritual Machines tour. Yes. I don't remember a lot of that show. I remember going to see because uh, we were interested in Sheila Divine at that point but I don't remember a whole lot about the uh, Our Lady Peace aspect of it do you remember much of that show I remember being surprised how many people were there um, there were some diehards yeah yeah I mean I remember them being pretty good but definitely yeah I just remember being show. packed I just remember being one of those shows at the Newport where it was you know packed there were people standing just you know, hanging off the railings, and there was, like, no space at all. It was completely jam-packed, so that's all I remember. Well, we, we talked a little bit about some of the albums that came out after this record. Why don't we do a brief history of the band on Our Lady Peace? History of the band! So they formed in Toronto, Canada in 1992. Original lineup was Mike Turner on guitar, Michael Media on vocals, and they formed the band called, um, it was called As If, and then they added Jim Newell on drums and Paul Martin on bass. After a few gigs, Paul Martin left, and he was replaced by Chris Earcrit. The band changed their name to Our Lady Peace after a Mark Van Doren poem, and Michael Media 
changed his name to Rain in order to avoid confusion with Mike Turner. I, I guess when they were trying to do stuff in practice and they'd be like, hey, Mike, do this. And they'd be like, which one? So he, he changed his so name to Unpretentious name Rain. Rain with an E. Oh. So they recorded a single called Out of Here. It was released in February of 1992 and the video got played on Much Music, which is the Canadian version of MTV. The drummer Jim Newell was replaced by John Bouvette. After a showcase for multiple record labels, they signed to Sony Canada in April 1993. And then Jeremy Taggart, who was only 17 at the time, was brought in to replace uh, John Bouvette. So apparently the signing of the major label deal went well, but not well for Mr. Bouvette, who got the boot. Or got the boot A. This is a Canadian band. Uh, they signed to Columbia in the U.S., or sorry, they, so they released Navid, their debut album, in March 1994, and then followed that up by signing to Columbia in the U.S. for the release. Uh, while writing and recording their second album, bassist Chris Irkut left the band, and he was replaced by Duncan Coots. I think that's how you pronounce it. C-O-U-T-T-S. Their second album, Clumsy, came out in January of 1997. Their third album, Happiness Is Not a Fish You Can Catch, Came out two years later in September of 1999. In December of 2000, Spiritual Machines was released. It was inspired by a Ray Kurzweil book, The Age of Spiritual Machines. And Matt Cameron of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden filled in for the injured Jeremy Taggart on two of the songs on that album. In December of 2001, there was a shift in the band Arnold Lanny who had produced all four of their first record first four albums um, was dropped as their producer and they met with Bob Rock at this point and it gets a little murky in the terms of the explanation guitarist Mike Turner was either fired or he quit the band in late December of 2001 and he was replaced by Steve Mazier in April of 2002 a few months later, the album Gravity was released. It's in June of 2002. In August of 2005, the album Healthy and Paranoid Times was released. Rain Media released a solo album, The Hunter's Lullaby, in November of 2007. In July of 2009, the seventh album Burn Burn was released. And in April of 2012, their eighth album Curve was released. And in October of 2012, just about uh, six or seven months ago, Jeremy Taggart confirmed that the band is currently working on their ninth record. So that is the history of Our Lady Peace, Truncated, Try to Keep It Short. Uh, if you want to suggest a band for review, please visit the request of a request to review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Jay, we got a couple pieces of feedback for this record that you selected. First from David Weisberg. He says, I can't wait. That album has a lot of memories for me, especially from my high school days. David is younger than us. Is that what I got <laughs> gathered from that sentence? Yeah, a little bit. And then uh, Tim James commented, I don't remember if this album was big in the States. I seem to remember Superman, Superman's Dead and Clumsy off their second album getting more airplay than anything off this album. I could be wrong, though. Uh, you're not wrong. I think the second album definitely had more singles 
and more more play the American audiences uh, than the first album did. But uh, we'll get into that. So Jay, since this is your pick, that means I get to go first. Yeah. All right. I'm uh, I'm taking a swig of beer. <laughs> my, my blue new blue moon agave nectar. So. And, uh, when did you uh, first hear about this band? Well, since I was working at the radio station at the time, I pretty much found out of this band when we started playing it. Um, I know there was a video for Starseed, but I don't think I discovered them through the video. I'm pretty sure I discovered them just by listening to the record. And there was that rock station in Toledo, um, The End, I think it was. Yep. And I think they played the hell out of this this album. And so I remember picking it up pretty early on and listening to this record a lot. And when it came to the second record, Clumsy, I was actually a bit disappointed. And I'll, I'll get into that in my review. But there's two observations I want to make up at the, at the start of this. One is, what is with Canadians having lead singers who have weird voices? Uh, Rain Media has this kind of, I don't know, cackle at times, or, or <laughs> it's definitely nasally. And then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you got Getty Lee. Yeah. Um, you got uh, Gord Downey of the Tragically Hip. Yeah. Uh, I might even throw uh, some Triumph in there. There's mm. some, uh, there's some, there's some odd vocal stylings. Neil Young, very nasally. A lot of nasally yeah. things. Maybe it's because it's cold and they have to sing. Uh, nasally, they're nasally because they're stuffed up. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm... <laughs> anyway, that's not my real observation. My my observation is this: is my grandiose statement. To me, Our Lady Peace are like the alternative Canadian cult, and this is their sonic temple. And Starseed is their uh, is their um, she sells sanctuary. Whoa, whoa, we walk. Yeah. Okay, wait. She sells sanctuary is not on Sonic Temple. Okay, I meant. <laughs> I meant ele- uh, love? Not love. Sorry, not okay. Sonic okay, Temple. okay. This is their love. Uh, yeah. Okay. I can, and yeah, this I is and the, yes. Uh, and I'll, I'll get into that why because there's a there's a, a a slight bit of spirituality to the of the to the sound of Our Lady Peace. They they work in some like Eastern um, scales, and mm. you know Ian Asbury always has that spirituality aspect to him. American Indian and and. Uh, and uh, Memphis Hip Shake and all that kind of thing. And they're, it's rooted in, I don't, this album is not really that alternative, even though I said it's alternative. It's really kind of a straight up rock record. Um, the guitar riffing is straight out of the Billy Duffy handbook. Uh, I mentioned Starseed being like She Sells Sanctuary. It even has sort of like a, that Billy Duffy 12th string uh, or 12th fret lead going on that that carries it through parts of the songs it's uncanny in in a way that his playing reminds me so much of of duffy's playing especially in songs like uh super satellite and um uh birdman which kind of opens the album with um one of the heavier riffs uh and i like the way that that song kind of shifts between riffs in the verses and the choruses um it's got this quick ascending and descending riff in the in the chorus that's really cool mm-hmm. and the thing that going back and listening to this that i picked up on is how well produced it is 
I cranked it in my car, and uh, Nina wasn't happy about that. But I said, "You gotta, you gotta just put up with this." And I turned <laughs> it up really loud, and uh, just gotta put up with it. You just gotta put up with it. And uh, I put it. I turned it up really loud, and just the, the bass tones sound really good. And yeah. I could, I picked up on a lot of extra little guitar stuff that he's doing, whether mm-hmm. it's like little harmonic things that he's doing here and there, or um, little extra leads and. It's just it's got little touches of like a band that had time to develop their sound. And I think that's what was missing for me on the second album. They're clearly writing singles and they're going to more of like a chord progression um simplified songwriting style. It seemed like they actually reined it in on that second record whereas mm-hmm. this record feels kind of big and like they're basically putting it out there you know, this is what we're about. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the first, not in a lot of ways, but it, spiritually, it reminds me a lot of the first Interpol record in the sense that I think that that's a band that really peaked on their first album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they did so by like sticking to a sound, but really owning that particular sound. And mm-hmm. then they've just tried to repeat that sound where I think from time to time, Our Lady Peace has written some good singles. Clumsy was probably their strongest whole album effort. But from happiness to spiritual machines to the god-awful Gravity record, yeah. which sounds like a bad Creed Nickelback album, yeah. um, all the distinctness of Our Lady Peace is pretty much crushed underneath the production of Bob Rock, who I like on other records. I think he did a great job on the on the Cult Beyond Good and Evil record. Mm-hmm. Um but for this band, it just absolutely killed it. And then I've listened to the album since then, and they've just been, I think, gotten weaker and less interesting. And a lot has to do with Mike Turner's guitar playing. I just think that he's always doing something interesting. He's always throwing a lick or a lead that's tasteful and not too showy, but just the right amount of spice to the mix that whether it's even sometimes it's just the right uh, effect at the beginning of Super Satellite, he's got some sort of effect on his guitar. I'm not sure what quite what it is. Do you know what that is? It sounds like a really uh, big, like a vibrato or something. Yeah, it's or? like a like a roto vibe. Roto vibe. And he does that in a couple other places, like in Under Zenith and Dirty Walls has some interesting things going on. But really, like, 
this is a record. It's only like 47 minutes long. It's 11 songs. There's no, there's nothing that sticks out as being like, this is, you know, this song sticks out. This song is bland. This song is, you know, I can skip it. Like, they move quick. They don't spend a lot of time um, in any particular area so that all the songs are pretty much, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, maybe throw in a bridge here and there. And it's really simple. Really, the only time where they stretch it out is sort of the beginning of like a star seed um, or maybe one or two other songs. I think there's a, one song that starts with a the bongo drum or tabla or something like that has some yeah. sort of percussion. But it's not really... There's no, there's not a lot of indulgence on this record. It's pretty streamlined, and I really appreciate that. Um, going back and listening to it, it still feels as fresh and energetic as it did back then. So, what yeah. was it like going back and listening to it uh, for you? Yeah, I, I agree with all those points. I mean, it was. Um, uh, I really appreciated how distinct it sounded. It really, you know, the like you said, the production is really solid. Um, you know, just from a tone standpoint, I really, I think it, not only does everything sound good, I think it all sounds unique. And um, it's particularly like the, the guitar uh, and drum sound um, from a guitar standpoint. Uh, he He's a lot of effects, but he does them in a very tasteful way and a very purposeful way. And then uh, it never gets too too heavy too crunchy although you know there's times where he plays pretty heavy riffs Mm -hmm. because the tone is uh the tone is is not overly distorted um and and the guitars are pretty low it's it's really interesting the way this is mixed like so when he plays those riffs not only is it you know a fairly it's an overdriven nice overdriven tone with some reverb on it but uh you know, he'll go into a big, big riff and it, it feels big, but the guitars aren't eating up the entire um, mix. And that's something that it seems now like all rock music is mixed that way. And trust me, I, you know, obviously, you know, I love guitars mm-hmm. as much or more than anybody. But it's so nice to go back and listen to a record like this that, you know, the, everything's given space. You can, um, you know, if you put on a, a good set of speakers and could set of headphones it's like you're able to hear a lot of details a lot of um really cool mixing tricks that go on with the how the guitars are mixed they'll be um you know panned and doubled left and right and then they'll throw an accent guitar in the middle just for you know, like a little like harmonic part or a little um like melodic lead um so the guitar kind of bounces around which makes it interesting um you know the drum tone is good, but it's unique. Um, the snare tone is it's kind of kind of ringy, and usually I don't, you know, from usually that's not a great sound, but for some reason, like it works really well on this record. It makes it when it all comes together, it sounds. I think of all their records, the most unique, and yeah, and from a songwriting standpoint, I think it it does the same thing. Uh, so not only is it sonically unique, but from a writing standpoint, I think it's what you what you originally said about you know this is a band that worked um, for a while on this material, and it's you can tell because it has all this nuance in it, it has all this detail, it has um, you know cool bits and parts, and it's not just chord progressions, and it sounds like a band playing it with energy, and you know I, I love that, and unfortunately they've never been able to really capture that consistently on any other record. 
So, you know, I, I, I started to notice that the songs I was most, I think, held up the best for me and I like the most now. I think the whole record's pretty solid, but the ones that really hold up well are the ones where there's kind of two, there's a couple formulas going on here. One of the formulas is uh, they'll introduce a guitar lead as almost like the hook or the melody, not unlike what you said, like what the cult did in the, um, the love era, where there'll be, if you think of uh, She Sells Sanctuary, you know, the guitar lead in that song. It's not unlike that. So they'll establish mm-hmm. that lead somewhere in the first verse of the intro of the song. And then they'll bring that back for the chorus and the vocal will, you know, sort of either play off of that or do a counter to that. But there's this really, you know, really highly melodic uh, combination of a, a guitar lead and a vocal. Some of the other songs that I don't think I like as much, they do more of a, like a riff in the chorus and it'll be more of like a heavy, you know, the three or four chord, you know, progression. And uh, it just doesn't have the melody. And, and I found some of those songs to be kind of a, you know, in, in hindsight, a little bit of a letdown um, when you do get to that chorus. But, you know, there's nothing on here that's, you know, like even like Dirty Walls. Like I don't like the chorus of that song, but the verses of that song I like. That's one of those songs where you get to the chorus and you're like, eh, yeah, this isn't anything special. But the verses are pretty cool. song like it's not one of my favorites but i'll uh you know still leave it on uh, the the songs that really stood out to me now as being you know really really good were uh the Birdman, starseed navid um julia was a song that i had totally forgotten about and hadn't listened to and or hadn't remembered in a and long it's got time. that great lead at the beginning yeah yeah and that's one of those ones that uses that formula that i love and then um Probably my one of my favorites at the time, and still one of my favorites is Neon Crossing. Uh, I just love the uh, you said you know great use of guitar effects, and that's a song that does that. There's like a I don't know if it's like a delay or or what it is, but the intro has it on it. And uh, mm-hmm. when they get to the pre-chorus, he really uses this effect, and it makes it sound. If you just focus on the guitar and the way it sounds, it almost sounds like a like a distorted synth or something. It's a really cool sound. And then when they get to the chorus, it's the best part because it's just kind of a, you know, just a big open, you know, chord riff, which, um, and it has space, you know, and it just, it works really well. And they deliver the, you know, 
neon crossing line in the chorus and just really powerful and um it's always been ever since i first got the record been one of my favorite songs and still think holds up really well Yeah, overall, I was I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I heard some things I had never heard before. Part of that was just I think some maturity and way I hear mm-hmm. music now, and then also just um, you know a little better music gear. I'm listening to it now, so it was it was a, it was enjoyable listen from that standpoint, and just made me appreciate that you know I think that this band was on this record, like you said, Interpol was a great comparison because I think it's exactly the same thing. They were wholly unique on the first record and then they just can never consistently find that you know again they kind of got lost and i think when the guitar player left it was sort of all down well i think i won't say it's all downhill from there because i think the albums they've released since uh gravity are better than gravity yeah they're not they're not anywhere near this one or clumsy or even um happiness you know, that's got one main army on it, which is my one of my favorite Our Lady Peace songs. So. Yeah, that has one of the, my favorite guitar solos of all time. <laughs> Just absolutely ripping guitar yeah. solo. Um, you mentioned about appreciating. I think the thing that in revisiting this record that I, I appreciated more, what is it, 19 years later, is the interplay between the bass and the drums. And I was sort of shocked in, in researching the history that this is the only album that Chris... Um, Earcrit played on and it's it sort of sucks because his bass playing is really like integral to a lot of these songs um, I'm thinking yeah. like in the in the verses of Starseed where it just breaks down between his his guitar uh, his bass riff and the drums it's not a it could be it could have been a much simpler and less interesting bass riff oh, or, yeah. or or drum part and they bring something wholly unique to that part of the song uh, and it carries it
then also, uh, you mentioned about the snare tone. Uh, on Navid, I mean, it's it's totally bass and drum-driven for large parts of that song. Yeah. Um, and again, it's I was just sort of shocked at that. Like, I don't know if there was some sort of falling out or if he just... What happened? But it... Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me because I kind of feel like maybe you know maybe there there was some tension with the songwriting after this record and he didn't like where it was going or they didn't like where he was taking things or I don't know what but that's it's definitely that's something that I mean I'm nothing not to take anything away from their current bass player who's been there since clumsy he's a good bass player he's a damn fine bass player from what I remember seeing him live but uh, he's not he doesn't bring anything to the table that um chris Earcrit's not already doing on this record so i don't know well it's a it's was. a band it's a band on this record and i think since yeah. then it's been you know not the same not to say it's not a band but uh, you can tell this is a group of four guys getting together in a room and working this stuff out you know for hours and hours and hours and hours and really feeding off each other and giving each other space and, and building things up and tearing them down and, you know, everything a band goes through. And I don't get the feeling that, uh, you know, that probably happens in the same way that it, that it did then with the, with the, whoever's in the band now. And frankly, it was, it was, it was just a good mix of people, you know, I mean, Jeremy Taggart's a fantastic drummer. I mean, the drums yeah. on this record are just, there's, there's subtle, you know, if, if you pay attention, you're like, oh, wow, it's amazing. But they don't get in the way of the song. Um, he does a lot of really cool, you know, sort of accenting and, and creating grooves and subtle grooves and sort of ghost um, ghost notes and just all this. He's filling in space, which for the most part, because they only have one guitar, there's sort of a play back and forth where, you know, the guitars will get simpler and they'll kind of pan and then the drum will come forward. You know, and the drum will fill in some of the space in a verse, you know, and the bass maybe fill in some more space. And then when we get through the chorus, those guys will kind of simplify a little bit and they'll double the guitar up and add another part. There's just a real nice, you know, interplay that happens between, you know, how the, how the album's produced, but also how they're feeding off of each other. That that works really well. Um, it's just a good mix of players, you know, and, and the songs are, for the most part, pretty solid. You know, I don't think every song on here is amazing in terms of songwriting, but I think there's, you know, at least half of them are solid, you know, alt rock, you know, uh, alt rock songs, alt rock radio songs. And yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I guess I would have never, it, it's cool that these guys have had a career. I, you know, I think they have had a legitimate career and they can probably still go out and tour now and draw enough to, to have a, make a living. But I guess they could have been so much more, when I, you know, when I listen to this record, it's sort of like mm-hmm. they kind of went backwards. You know, they still they still managed to be successful in some way, but uh, not nearly have the impact that maybe they could have had. What did you think of his vocal in hindsight? Well, it was funny because I was thinking, oh, there's nobody that sounded like him. You know, he was so unique. And then I started to think about that era and some other bands and one of them that came to mind was live Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of similarity similarity between what rain made is doing and and ed kowalchuk from from live um in the use of 
for lack of a better term, histrionics uh, with regards to their vocal delivery. I don't even know what that means. Just this like spaz out. What the hell does that mean? Like oh, just, okay. you know what I mean? Like at the end of... Uh, bring a dictionary to this freaking show. Yeah, you better bring a dictionary. Uh, yeah. Navid at the you end mean of like, like a Navid. little like... Yeah, okay. And and those like extra, squeals like... and squelled and... and squalls yeah, no, and no. whatever you want to i don't know what you call but uh in, and it just so happened I, I was looking it up throwing copper came out the same year as this album so uh and that was the sort of the album that broke you know live out with i think there's like five huge singles off that record i mean that record was gigantic you can't go you couldn't go into yeah. a record store and look in the used section for like 10 years afterwards without finding at least five copies of throwing copper because so many people bought copies yeah. and then sold it back. And I think that they, in a, in, a, in a way, his vocal style might have opened the door a little bit for that being a little bit more accepted. That, you know, because if you think about it, what was popular was a much more deeper vocal style with guys like Eddie Vedder and, and Scott Weiland, or, you, or you'd have sort of like the metalish end of it with, with Lane Staley or. Uh, or Chris Cornell, you know, it, this sort of nasally, uh, I don't know what, what the, what the, what the term is, if it's, um, soprano or, or, uh, I don't know if, I'm not going to try to guess what, <laughs> what, what the range is, well, but it's not, I, I think it's not low. Let's put it that way. I found a lot of similarities between, uh, the approach that he was taking to, you know, what any better did. Okay. Um, with the way with the way that Eddie Vedder would, you know, add accents to consonants and extend them out. And, but the difference was that instead of going low, I think, which Eddie Vedder tends to do, I think he goes high. And that's where you get into kind of the nasally sound. So, I mean, overall, the effect is different because he's, you know, he's going in a different direction. But the, I think the expressiveness and the the inspiration for what to do with melody, you know, and a vocal, I found, you know, po- you know, similar and possibly, you know, it's he could have been an inspiration for, you know, where he arrived on this record. So I, I didn't find it like as from out of left field as I re- originally remember it being. Now the tone of his voice is, yeah, that's distinct, which is is great. I mean, I think all the Canadian artists that you listed. Um, I think that's fantastic, and I'm not sure what to attribute that to, other than, you know, maybe they grow up listening to different music, a slightly different music than we do, and that comes out in, you know, the musicians of the last few generations. But um, you're Even right, moist. there are a lot. Of, the guy yeah, from Moist has a, a different voice. They all grow, uh, grew up listening to Gordon Lightfoot. There you go. That's what it is. Gordon freaking Lightfoot. Um, would you classify this as sort of the second wave of alternative in the 90s? Yeah. Because this is 94, so I'm thinking this is pre it, it was second. 20, pre... Yes. Yeah. I don't even know when... It was the play. second in the, in the last good one. <laughs> you know, it was like, two was enough. There was like, the first one, it was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, where's this going to go? And then the second one happened, and you're like, Oh, this is you know these are all cold bands too, and they're they're sort of in a different direction, and they're opening more doors, and 
the third one came, you're like, mm, wait a minute. And then the fourth one, and then you're like, oh, God, what's next? Well, like, I've had enough. And then the fifth one. and Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just want to listen to classic rock and metal. Not- 94 95 is when you get like this record like i mentioned throwing copper you get collective souls first record you get the big everclear album um you get what else so then so that okay so that's like the second wave and then the third wave would be like your third eye blinds which would be like 96 97 tonic Um, yeah tonic uh, what else? Uh, I guess no. Seven Mary Three. Seven Mary Three actually is ninety five. So oh, this, is it? T- technically, I guess from our purposes, it would be the second wave. <sighs> yeah, yeah. So, what was Sponge? I'm gonna look that one up too. Sponge was ninety four. So, so ninety four was a good year. I mean, for some quality alternative rock, you know, in the yeah. in the mainstream sense. Um. You know, I'm sure there's some people like previous suggestors, David Gorgos might disagree and say that Collective <laughs> Soul, Everclear, Sponge, Live, and Our Lady Peace represent the nadir of uh, 90s alternative music. But for our purposes, it, it was a pretty solid year. I don't know. We'll have to review those records sometime. I know for sure. We will. All I can say is, you know, I feel like this one stands up pretty, pretty well. I can't speak for the rest of the catalog, um, but I think this one is a worthy listen. I, I think without it, uh, I've listened to every LAD piece album at least once, and this by far is their best record. And this by far is the record that if you're going to introduce introduce somebody to LAD piece, I think this is the record. You do it. You can maybe make an argument for Clumsy, but I think this is the album that they hit on all cylinders. What's your uh, okay? What's your rating? Were the album better EP decent single? Were the album? I'm there with you. Were the album? Uh, the only song that not there's not even any song. I don't think there's any bad songs. Um, denied. It's okay. It has mm. actually this, the thing that saves that song for me has a really great guitar solo, um, but it's sort of in a three-four swing tempo and yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's not terribly interesting rhythmically. And um, like, yeah. so they try to save it with some percussion and stuff like that. But it yeah, yeah, that's where the percussion is on that one. That's it. And I, I, you know, sometimes we do if if you like such and such a band, you're gonna like this band. I don't think there's any other. I don't think there's a lot of bands doing this. I think if you were into those bands that we mentioned, and that are still around, you're going to be into this band. But there's an earnestness that's not available anymore in rock music. I think, that, I that think this is, this is a more of a. Uh, I would think most people that listen to this podcast are aware of who Our Lady Peace is. I guess I would caveat it with if you've you probably are familiar with clumsy and gravity if you know it might be worth giving this album a listen it might change your perspective a little bit on what this band is about um if you're only familiar with the the singles from those previous records yeah so i mean it's it's all radio rock in the spirit of let's say the most generic band that's has some credibility food fighters 
but a different, you know, a pretty mm-hmm. different take on that. Yeah. Agreed. Totally agree. And uh, that's it's good that you mentioned the Foo Fighters because I think their first album, the the self-titled one, came out like a year or two. Yeah, 95. So same in, the, in that second wave. Yeah. There you so, go. There you go. We're going to have to do a... We should do a series of books perhaps called first the first wave of the 90s <laughs> the second wave of the 90s the third wave of the 90s i don't know if there's a fourth wave but well uh if, if you go to spotify and just do the related artists for our lead piece i'll rattle them off here and you tell me if it's second wave or not dishwalla second wave third third wave bush second wave e6 third wave Verve pipe. Ooh, that might be second wave. Better than Ezra. Second wave. Fuel. Third. Vertical horizon. Third. Collective soul. Second, we already covered that. Everclear candle box. Second. Jim blossoms. Second. Toad the wet sprocket. Second. They were around for a while. Yeah. Goo goo dolls. Um, well, That's, they're hard to pin down because yeah. they were around in the eighties. So they just they gained popularity. They're a weird band. They they kind of break the mold in a lot of ways. Lit. Oh god, they're third wave, right? They might be fourth. They might be fourth. <laughs> that song was like big when we were had moved to Columbus. Like so it was like all two thousands. That has one of the most annoying guitar riffs of all time, that band. They're ninety seven. But a, their big album was ninety nine, a place in the sun, so Remy Zero. Oh, I think they're like 97, so I'd play some third. Filter. But they had a filter. Well, they're kind of like, they have an industrial aspect to them. They don't, I, I think they're second wave, but they kind of aren't quite in the same ballpark. So that first album, Short Bus, is really good. Silverchair, second wave. And uh, Harvey Danger. Uh, third, but I don't even count them. That'd be like counting presidents of the United States. They're novelty didn't, band. So, didn't we recently get somebody asking us to review one of their records? Yes, somebody wanted us to review Flagpole Sitta. Or is not that Flagpole Sitta, whatever, whatever that out. Where have all the Merrymakers gone, I think is the name of that. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I have to say I've never actually listened to that record. So Me neither, but say. it might be an can't interesting say. listen. Can't say one way or another about that band. But if, he, if you would like us to review that record, head on over to our request to review page. How's that for a segue, Jay? And uh, request our uh, or, or send us a, a little bit of uh, payola, and we'll we'll take care of it for you. That's how things get done around here. Got to grease the wheels, as they say, and the wheels um, spin for you. So, I think it's time to wrap it up, Jay. If you like what you heard, leave us some feedback at iTunes, and uh, we would greatly appreciate it. And uh, we're gonna be back next week with another listener suggestion. So. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll 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 talk to you. No, we won't talk to you. You'll hear us talking. We won't have a conversation back and forth. Uh, but we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Sure is-